welcome to another episode of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. Throughout the long and colorful history of Galveston, no name has embodied the spirit of the island quite like the name Maceo. Two penniless Sicilian immigrants rose from modest beginnings to lead an entire city to prosperity. Yet, the nature of their industry and its abrupt and embarrassing end resulted in a legacy cloaked in stereotypes and rumor. For nearly 40 years, Sam and Rose Maceo ruled a far-reaching underground economy of illegal booze and gambling, but used their influence to infuse the free state of Galveston with glamour, fame, and fortune, a vision later used as a template for Las Vegas. The island city responded in kind, and its acceptance of the Maceos insulated their empire for decades. Pairing personal interviews of living descendants with her own meticulous research, Kimber Fountain lifts the veil on the Maceo family. Closely guarded heritage. Kimber, thanks for joining me. Hi, great to be here. All right, so before we go back in time to the Galveston of Sam and Rose, let's talk about Galveston today because I want to make a comparison in a little bit. So, what is Galveston today like? Galveston today is this um, kind of brilliant tapestry of industry and tourism and arts and culture and entertainment. It's, uh, there's something for everyone. It's, you know, we have the harbor side, the north side of the island, which uh, is where our Strand District is, but also where our, you know, industry in the harbor. And then on the other, on the southern edge of the island, we have our seawall and our more beach-centric uh, businesses and things like that. And then all throughout, you know, the main culture, the main driving aspects of the culture here are small business, uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, historical organizations, as well as uh, arts uh, and, and running the gamut of arts from fine art to theater to music to all of that. So it's just a brilliant little spot nestled over here off the, the coast of Texas uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. And I really I can't say much about uh, enough about it. It's um, it's a great community, too. And it's very different than um, a lot of people expect from a normal Texas town. Uh, you know, it's very diverse. It's very tolerant, open-minded, um, huge uh, emphasis, you know, on working together and community and goals of that not, and a lots of support All right. from the community as well. Very cool. So, so let's go back in time now to before Sam and Rose get to Galveston. What's Galveston yeah. like before Sam and Rose arrived? Sure. Well, the city was founded in 1839 as an international port of commerce, and that port continued to grow throughout the rest of the 19th century. And uh, Galveston at one point was the second wealthiest city in the nation per capita, second only to Newport, Rhode Island, which is the home of the Vanderbilts, mm -hmm. by the way. So just to put that in perspective. And so uh, and so during the, night, the late 19th century, which even today some people refer to as our glory days or our heyday, you know, the main emphasis was on um, cotton importing and exporting on, uh, you know, international imports as well as we were the closest ports to all of the grains of the Midwest, as well as all of the new uh, things that were coming out of the West as well. And so we were also responsible for exporting all of that. 
and the city just grew and there was this mansion building contest down the center uh strip which is named broadway avenue and today of course those mansions are museums but they were originally built as people's homes and so it's kind of this you know thriving um industry you know really more commercial related and then the great, uh, great storm of 1900 hit and uh it's um it didn't Many historians attribute Galveston's, you know, commercial demise to the Great Storm, but there's really a brilliant um, about 15-year period after the Great Storm of 1900 where uh, Galveston's port was breaking all of the records that it had set in the late 19th century, not to mention we were building um, a seawall as well as elevating the entire southern half of the island an average of 13 feet uh, with what was called the grade raising, and it was still considered one of the most monumental feats of civil engineering. Um, uh, and so the seawall, though, kind of started to become a trend. Like at first it was just built for protection. And then uh, the city started to realize people were just coming down just because they were awed by this sidewalk by the sea, you know, is a long and 17 feet high, you know? And so uh, this kind of alternate economy began kind of stirring around the seawall. Yeah. And, you know, Galveston had really never intended on being, you know, an entertainment or a resort destination because we all of our wealth came from the port. But because of the seawall, we kind of naturally started to phase that in. And it happened just in time because in 1914, uh, the uh, uh, Port of Houston opened and the Houston Ship Channel opened. And so they pretty much siphoned off the majority of our commercial um, prospects um, on the harbor side. And so then we became more, um, put more emphasis on the seawall. And then that was just in time for two brothers from Maceo named Salvatore and Rosario Maceo to show up yeah and what is their their whole story and man so you are very concise in your storytelling in your narrative which i appreciate and you go i mean you go back to time in sicily and tell exactly what's going to bring them back which is uh i really like because i you know i like you know deep diving on things i'm a deep yes. dive person i'm the you know yeah. let's go on youtube and let's like go click on the next link kind of guy you know what i mean exactly so, um, yes and if i'm more that way really with history books so i'm like okay so wait i gotta put this book down so i can go look in this book now because i need to find out more about what's going on here before i keep going with this story with this narrative but i didn't yeah. have to do that because you kind of did that for me so i appreciate uh, that, that is, wow that's a great compliment yeah. thank you so much because that's uh <laughs> One, it's funny you use those words deep dive because those are my exact words that I use when I talk about this book too because there's been a lot of misunderstanding and uh, negative uh, remembrances of the Maceos that have become part of the mainstream narrative, unfortunately, that surround them. And I never saw that from the very first time I was introduced to this history at the beginning in 2012, many years ago. Um, I just, I just saw, you know, everything that, you know, I capture in the book, which is just the, the, the sheer, their audacity, but also their diplomacy and yeah. their compassion and all of this just, you know, and their, their talents, you know, so brilliant, all wrapped up into this little bitty island, you know, like that was just kind of, you know, undulating off the shore, yeah. you know, it's crazy what was going on here. And, uh, and so I just wanted, yeah, I really wanted to bring that to life, but I knew that in order to do that, I had to combat that 
um, that narrative, you know, that general narrative that, that, that goes around now. And in order to do that, I had to do that deep dive. I just had to, you know, because I wanted, I wanted there to be no room for conjecture, uh, no room for speculation. You know, I wanted the black and white proof that my idea of who the Macy's were was true, you know, because I knew in my heart that it was, you know, I knew I had a hunch and I just knew that the story hadn't been told in the right way. Yeah. So I definitely appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, you know, cause, cause I had to go through too and read it, you know, I was talking with my wife a little bit about it and then until, you know, and then like when I finished, cause you know, I, you kind of go through it too. And you're like, okay, well, so is Kimber writing this book with an agenda or what's happening? And as you go through it, you say like, well, no, because she had, you know, she entered into it because, you know, you kind of go at it with a reporter's kind of like I did at it. And we're going to talk about more about what you and I are talking about here in a second. Okay. But like, you know, you're like, okay, so what is she, you know, is, is she, you know, trying to put like a, a, a positive spin on this family or something? But no, you came into it with a hunch about, okay, I believe that there was just some propaganda unleashed against this family and yeah. so but then you actually presented the evidence that that was the case um you know and I, I see that you know that you did that because at first i was like no i think like you know maybe there's just going to be some gray area and you know there's good in 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 a, in a gray area you know what i mean like you can find exactly. positively exactly. in a gray area hey rain comes when it's gray outside you know what i mean good comes from rain so i mean there's I mean, that's kind of a weird saying, but I mean, you seriously. No, it's, no, you're exactly right. And we also, it also, we, it also makes people challenge their barometer of what's right and what's wrong. Um, because sometimes we have, a, you know, a different way of looking at things. And sometimes we need, we have to take a step back and say, okay, why do I think this is wrong? Is it, do I think that this was wrong because somebody told me that it was wrong. You know, if I actually think about this critically, is anyone being harmed? Are anyone's rights yeah. being infringed upon? Or, you know, and and so I, I just love that about their story, that it really presents the reader as it did myself, you know, with this, you know, kind of eye-opening look at the world. Yeah, well, you it know? goes back like, to also with the time that they're in too. I mean, you know, we talk about legislation. Le I mean, we're not trying to, I'm not going to try to get political with it or anything I'm really trying to tread sure. lightly on it too, but you know we're talking about prohibition era, really, and you're yeah. talking about legislating morality. But you got to put that also. You got to hold hold up the mirror to the day that you're in right now too, when you're talking about exactly. legislating morality. Um, exactly. That's what history that's exactly is. We're always it. talking about history repeating itself, and it's like, okay, hey, turn on the light, then you know. <laughs> you're exactly right. Sorry, yes, I'm trying um, not to rant. Yeah. I try to save those for my wife because she enjoys those so much every no, day when I'm, I go on a rant. But um, I'm right on. I'm right with you yeah. because and and it, yeah and it, and it is and you know I I'm one of those people as far as my life philosophy you know you you can't define yourself by your past you know and and you you know your past is relatively insignificant to where your future is taking you or it doesn't have to be significant put it that way and so then I kind of wrestled with myself at the beginning of my career as an historian because I said okay well if I believe and on a personal level that my past you know that I need to you know take it or leave it you know then why in the heck am I going to spend all this time dredging up 
common history, you know, if I don't want to dredge up my own history. And then the way I reconciled that or the way I realized that, you know, why this had meaning was exactly that. I had to put meaning into it. I didn't, I wasn't just writing history to regurgitate facts and figures. I was writing history to, like you said, shine that lens, you know, on modern day and help us to see, you know, to learn from history, not just, not just know it because it's interesting or entertaining. And the best part about this story is that it's interesting, it's entertaining, and it does all of that at the same time. Yeah, I mean, history is more, uh, speaking of entertaining, I mean, history is more entertaining than any work of fiction you're ever going to read. That's why people who write fiction gather things that actually happen from history to go into their work. Yes, definitely. And I've often said that about the Maceo story, that it just it it blows my mind that people have felt the need to sensationalize this story, you know, by calling them mafia and thugs and gangsters and all that. Um, when the real story is so much more yeah. interesting than the sensationalized version, you know. So Yeah, and we're gonna yeah. okay, we gotta get into to into that. I, we okay, I feel like you and I could hang out and be friends and talk Definitely. about this. You know, Kimber too, okay, I'm gonna go down another rabbit trail on this because you know okay. you can find if you go dig deep enough into your history you can find somebody some people in your family who's who who you know part of it's survival too and they help people survive you i mean you know this because you wrote like you said earlier when we had a pre-interview phone call um you wrote the book on them um mm-hmm. so but you know there were people in during the prohibition time and in my family who 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 were moonshiners and they did it to survive you know they did it because exactly. they had to do it to survive. In fact, on my dad's side, um, both the great grandfathers wow. on my dad's side did that to survive. Um, you know, uh, one of them went to jail yeah. for a while for it. In fact, he went to jail because he he shot out of a at a U.S. mail airplane because he thought they were out trying to uh, revenue. You know, look for a moonshiner, so he kind of oh, gave himself away because he did it. But uh, they were trying, you know, just trying to do what they could do. Um, you know, there were, you know, middle Georgia people trying to do the best they could do. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's just, you know, again, it's a morality thing. You can't legislate morality. Yeah. So, you I mean, can't. you can find you if you there's going to be those people in, you know, in your own family. So we'll look at, you know, your own history before you try to judge somebody else. Um, yeah. And that's what helps you do that. But let's get back to the Mac. Mac you know, it, it reminded me of that when I was reading this book. That's basically what I'm trying to tell you. Um Love it. So, but the, uh, so Macias. So, I mean, you go back into history. I mean, we go back to the unification story with Italy mm-hmm. in 1861, which a lot of people don't realize that Italy is not that old of a country. Um, yeah. I mean, we're, has a, has a, an actual country. The United States is older, even though we were starting a civil war in 1861. But, sure. Uh, so, but Sicily is kind of, you know, always been where the Macias are from. They've always kind of been like a chip that's been like passed around a bit. Um, you know, use kind of has like a uh, a military point, if you will, in the Mediterranean Sea since yes. ancient times. And yes. this is where the Macios uh, find themselves at. And th- does this play a role for them coming over um, from their native Sicily? 
yeah, it, it played it played a huge role. And, you know, you're talking and even, you know, the little bit you mentioned is even very pre Maceo in uh, early days of Sicily. But even, you know, when during, you know, their time. So I needed to I, I, I thought it was very important. Yes. Of uh, Sicily to include their Sicilian history and kind of a brief, you know, um, excerpt about that nation, because, you know, otherwise, I, I guess it was almost bridging the gap because I knew that coming up, you know, I had the themes that we've been talking about, you know, and, and so in a way I knew that it would, you know, help people to understand where these guys were coming from. But it was also, again, to combat that narrative of them being mafia. Uh, because I thought it was very important to establish what the mafia was, how it originated, and then how the Maceos grew up on the wrong end of that, you know? And and so they were actually fleeing those mafia conditions in Sicily. So it makes absolutely no sense why they would continue with mafia tactics once they got over into the United States, you know? And then that's later proven in the way that they conducted their business. You know, there was no St. Valentine's Day massacre here. You know, we weren't hanging people from bridges like the Mexican cartel and things of that nature. It was not, there was, the, the, there was no trademark violence like there is in yeah. the mafia. If anything, they were a you know, shield against that coming exactly, in. Yeah. Exactly. And in fact, they did the exact opposite. Like you said, they shielded Galveston from the influence of, of the mafia. And so, yeah, but again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I wanted to just go as deep as I could to, 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 to combat that narrative. And, and, and so, but the, the history of Sicily, I just found that in itself absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. because, you know, here was this island, which Galveston is an island too. So there's an interesting, you know, kind of connection there as well with that whole psychology of isolation theory. And, uh, but yeah, it, it, and it forged this, this kind of sense of independence in the Sicilian nation, you know, because they couldn't rely on government. There was nobody, no, nobody was coming to save these people. They had to save themselves and, and they had to band together and they had to ally. And some of those alliances ended up turning into mafia, of course, and extorting people. But then the other alliances, as in the Maceo family, those were formed to protect themselves against that. And then ultimately most of those people ended up immigrating. Yeah. So that's where the story began. But it also um, helped ex- explain the Maceo family lineage. Um, so here's the deal. The the modern day Galveston Maceos actually didn't really have a, a distinct um, image of how they were related to Sam and Rose. Uh, and because everybody was a cousin, if you read anything, if you search anything online about the Maceos, everybody's a cousin, this person's a cousin. And I'm like, they can't all be cousins. <laughs> oh, but they were all cousins. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. And so part of that Sicily history was, was in tracing the lineage back and, and to explaining how the Maceo family lineage began, which was through one of those alliances, because two brothers, two Maceo brothers, each married a sister from the Sansone family. And they effectively created two branches of this Maceo family to where all of their children, there were like 13 in total, were double cousins because their mothers and their fathers were brother and sister. And eventually it was that that whole generation there, those double cousins, that ended up coming over with Sam and Rose to Galveston, all but two of them ended up in Galveston. And so, and, uh, and then to add to the... 
uh, the um, difficulty of doing a Sicilian family tree, there's like five names, okay, for like a hundred yes. people. You have <laughs> you have Rosario and Concetta, and uh, let's see, there were a lot of Victors and Vicks, and uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was quite the task, but it was really it was so cool the way it unfolded, and there was this one distinct moment where just like the bells went off and the lights went on, and I was like, I cracked it, you know, I figured it out, and uh, it was really cool to do that too. So that was a rain man moment for you on this. (laughs) It was, it was, it was like it, what it was really was like, if you ever played Tetris, I'm sure, you know, and finally the big long red one comes, you know, that you've been needing for like forever. And that's what it was. I was just putting all these pieces and putting all these pieces together. And I'm like, I know I'm missing something. I know I'm missing something. And finally, there it was, you know, and then the whole, you know, thing kind of just uh, exploded and became clear. So it was pretty cool. Theme songs totally not stuck in my head right now. (laughs) (laughs) yeah played way too much of that yeah i did too back in the day that was all we had you know we didn't have a smartphone full of you know i had the game boy and teenage mutant ninja turtles (laughs) yeah i love that one um so well that's an aside sorry about that but they go they come in you know and i didn't know i didn't realize how big so we're in galveston but before then i didn't realize until i read the book how big of a role new orleans played with in, in the immigration history of the united states that was cool to learn about um yes in the book i didn't realize that either actually i hadn't known that either yeah it was very cool and one branch of the macios actually ended up staying in new orleans for a few years um and then the other branch the other branch came back over sooner but so there is um it's really cool because galveston and new orleans have some just inherent connections being that they were both um immigration and commercial port centers during the same period and so that's why downtown galveston it has a very new orleans-esque feel or you want to say vice versa because we both had such a dominant european influence in our not only in our cityscape but in our culture um much more than you know the inner you know united states uh, up in the mainland. And so, um, so yes. And so then for that to, for, the, so for the Maceo family to also have this one side that has this piece of New Orleans, um, history as well, you know, that's why at Maceo Spice and Import Company that currently exists, you know, their trademark sandwiches, the muffaletta, you know, and they they sell king cakes and, you know, so it's just, there's this really kind of cool connection between Galveston, New Orleans and these little bitty kind of microcosmic ways that uh, is kind of cool to ferret out yeah, and then how it intertwines with the Maceo history too. It is cool. And my history, I'm Cajun. So oh. I'm Cajun roots. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, okay. So they're, it, they get to New Orleans and they're barbershop owners. So I want you yep. to kind of give the, give us a summary of how they go from being barbershop owners to having a stake in rum running. Sure. Um, well, how that happens is the primary evidence or the or the early evidence of of what they would eventually become because again what they achieved wasn't achieved with force it was achieved with diplomacy and compassion and community and so from the very beginning 
they just had these Sam and Rose both had these very trustworthy kind of demeanors, you know, and and the barbershop, even, you know, still, even though it's not quite as prevalent of a, a piece of Americana as it was at one time, you know, back during this time, that was this kind of a social hub. And that was where people gathered and gossip was shared and information was exchanged. And and so as barbers, especially um, considering, you know, again, their kind of innate abilities to um uh, you know, as people, uh, as people, people, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, you know, yeah, uh, they, um, they were able to forge very innocently, um, a relationship with uh, the leaders of one of, of a gang that was in Galveston at the time. Now I say gang again, they weren't really violent. They were, they were pretty, um, small town. They did, they ran underground poker games, and things of that nature, nothing too big time at all. In fact, yeah. there were two gangs at the time. There was the beach gang and the downtown gang representing the north side and the south side of the islands. Um, and so the uh, anyway, these were the leaders of uh, the beach gang and they became regular clients of Sam and Rose's. And so somehow in that, um, you know, as that relationship progressed, um, apparently, uh, the two leaders, Dutch and Ollie were their names. They were discussing, uh, a problem because they had, uh, had a shipment of liquor come in. This is during prohibition, of course, but they didn't, but they needed to stash it somewhere because the feds had found out about it and they were like hot on their heels. And so they needed somewhere to bury it because it just wasn't a good time to ship it off. You know, we did various things. They would either ship trucks into Houston. Sometimes it would get on a rail car and it would go all the way up to the Midwest, but it just depended, but there, there was no escape for this, you know, certain shipment of li liquor at that point. And it just so happened that Sam and Rose were living in a beach cottage that uh, many, much like many of the homes in Galveston was a pier and beam house, which meant, you know, there's that space underneath. It's not built on a concrete foundation. And of course that space under the house is a perfect place um, to stash some booze, you know, and then you just put a little lattice around the outside and nobody can see under there. Yeah. And so Sam and Rose decided um, or offered or, you know, came to an agreement that they would stash uh, this shipment of booze. Now, here's the deal. What really prompted Sam and Rose, uh, you know, is, is, is not really historically recorded. But I imagine, you know, of course, seeing where these guys became, they didn't just get these entrepreneurial skills and imaginations from nowhere. You know, that is something that had to have been percolating in their minds for a long time. And so they were kind of visionaries. They knew what they wanted to do. They knew, especially Sam, knew he was an entertainer. You know, he he, he knew that there was, and, and also they had just become enraptured with Galveston Island. And they just saw it as this you know, this miraculous place where, you know, that could become this worldwide international entertainment destination. And so, um, but the thing is they didn't have capital. They were making 25 cents a haircut and uh, Dutch and Ollie offered them a dollar for every case that they stashed under their house. Wow. And there were 1500 cases <laughs> and that's quite a big jump. Yeah in income and so they um they took their chances and they had a pretty restless three nights you know because they were pretty um fearful of being deported you know at that time and you know as well and so um which they wouldn't be unless they were caught doing something illegal different scene then but uh uh, so uh, then, you know, finally, Dutch and Ollie came to uh, gather their stash and offered to pay Rose. But being the 
uh, you know, businessman that he was from the get go, he said, you know what? He said, keep your money and flip it over into the next shipments. And so that is how uh, um, Sam and Rose became involved in Galveston's underground. Originally, the difference was that they were on an entirely different trajectory where the beach gang and the downtown gang were kind of content with their criminal ways. Uh, Sam and Rose, within a year of investing into uh, rum running, opened up their very first restaurant. Yeah. So, yeah. And they diversify. And the thing about for the salmon, and you kind of alluded to this earlier. Um, well, not really alluded. You just came out and said it, and you're absolutely right about it. But, I mean, it, but it, it goes kind of more beyond that to me because sometimes you say, you know, the city, it, you know, your adoptive city, like the city took you in. It's more like Sam sure. and Rose took this city in. Right. Yes. Especially yes. when you get and- into depression. I mean, they it almost turns it into like Holly, you know, they say Atlanta is now Hollywood South, but this place, when you see the pictures, you see the hotels, you see the resorts, um, you see the stars on the beach. This is, you know, Hollywood South. This is like, might as well yeah. be Hollywood, Texas. I mean, they, you talk about opening up a restaurants, they got hotels going, they've got all kinds of things happening. Um, yeah, just from that exactly. one investment. Exactly. And and what they did for Galveston has never been duplicated. And I'm not even sure it would it could ever be. And not only that, the fact that they did it um, amid a very restrictive economic climate here at the time, because there was what we call, you know, historically the big three. There were three families at the time that really had this iron grip on Galveston's economy. And that's part of the reason that we lost so much sway to Houston um, in 1914. Not just, we like to blame it on the ship channel, but the truth is we didn't really do what we needed to do to compete commercially because that would have meant letting outsiders in and that would have meant letting outside money in. And these, you know, these controlling families didn't really want to share that interest. And so I guess, you know, it probably obviously worked to Sam and Rose's advantage that they were in an entirely different industry than the big three. You know, they were focusing on entertainment, but still for them to come in and just take over this town that, you know, some of the I mean, some of the people who would go to Houston eventually became some of the wealthiest people in the world, you know, and so those people couldn't topple the big three. Yet here we have these two humble barbers who come in with nothing but a vision and a dream and just not only do they take over the city and and turn it into this profitable, luxurious, glamorous place, but they did so in a way that the major powers in the city at the time were forced to acquiesce because they were benefiting too. And it's just, I mean, it's just mind blowing, like to, 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 to have had such panache, you know, to have been able to, and at the same time, two of your main businesses are completely illegal. You know I mean? You know, it's, it's just, all right. You know, it's, it's, you just throw up your hands at one point. You're like, I just, I don't even understand. Like, it's so amazing what they did. It's really quite incredible. It's a really a testament to, you know, the power of not only human dreams in our, in our spirit, but also um, our, uh, you know, our integrity and our ability to really build things honestly and trustworthy. And, and again, to, to look at, to have a barometer for that honesty and that trustworthy to, to, to be able to have it be different than maybe even what it normally looks like, or maybe what we're taught or think to think what it should look yeah. like. So, well, yeah. So we, I've kept you close to the time. I told you I would keep you. Is it okay if we go a little bit over? 
Is yeah, okay with you? sure. All right, cool. Because yeah. I could just got a few more questions. First, I mean, I'm sure people are kind of understanding what it will be, but I want you to explain in your words what the free state of Galveston is and also sure. what the uh, Maceo's, you know, what they did for Galveston. Because we, we, we've talked about like how they've given back and adopted, but just, you know, talk about like a lot of the things they, you know, give us some of the details of what they did for their community uh, with their businesses. Sure, sure. Well, the Free State of Galveston is um, its first uh, an era of history. It's kind of the name of the era of history, mm -hmm. uh, roughly between 1920 and 1960. But while during that era of history, the Free State of Galveston was an actual thing, and it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing because locally and even at the state level for um, all intents and purposes, we simply had no desire to inf enforce federal laws that we didn't agree with. And it didn't matter what anybody else thought. And not only did we um, openly rebel against uh, laws that were placed against victimless crimes, and but we also turned the economy bolstered by that philosophy into one of the most robust in the nation at the time also. And so the reason, though, that it's um, it, there's another reason it's called the free state of Galveston, too. And that goes back, harkens back to what I said about the Maceos being nonviolent yeah. and not using violence. And again, you know, these men, they weren't extorting people with, you know, a sawed off shotgun. You know, there was none of that um, at the Maceos height. There were 42 different gambling houses in Galveston, and only three of those were owned by the Maceos. So they have this very laissez-faire, um, you know, um, approach to um, to the economy, and were totally, you know, totally new. They knew what a free market really was. You know, today we throw that word around. A lot of people, unfortunately, because of what's going on, we kind of mistake sometimes what we have for what it actually yeah. is. Because, yeah. Um, but anyway, but they knew, you know, they invited, nothing was competitive, no one was competition because they knew that what they were doing not only was at the foundation of what was going on, but they knew that, and I've even said this in modern day Galveston uh, many years ago when we were still kind of growing and there was a little bit of tension in the art community, you know, about different galleries opening up next to each other and stuff. And I said, you know, my thought was, look, if you have one art gallery on a street, you have one art gallery on a street. If you have 10 art galleries on a street, you have an art district, you have a destination, you know, and even um, a lot of, you know, modern day entrepreneurs know that, you know, they'll build a restaurant in the parking lot of their competitor's yeah. restaurant, you know, not because they know that business begets business begets business. And it's not about competition. And the Maceo's really um, had the um, very open-minded philosophy about that is really super cool. So that's so all those three things are really kind of amalgamated to you know create that um, that name and kind of flesh out the meaning of the free state of Galveston. Um, as far as you know what the Maceos did for the island, I think I kind of you know I've kind of touched on that a little bit just in explaining what the free state was. Um, but uh, you know they infused this level of glamour, uh, you know, again, that's never been duplicated. And, uh, and during, like you mentioned the great depression and 
Well, the rest of the country was standing in bread lines and there was a 20% estimated unemployment rate back then. It's, uh, you know, money was flying in Galveston and that's a direct quote by <laughs> one of the people who worked for the Macy's. And, you know, it was really incredible. Same thing during World War II when there were rations and metal drives and all that, you know, you know, Galveston was just churning along. And and uh, that brings up another interesting, you know, economic points that, uh, you know, entertainment is almost and even liquor especially too by the way um is are inelastic you know it doesn't matter what else is going on economically entertainment and alcohol you know are pretty much going to stay you know they're not going to see a big drop in sales yeah. you know vices are 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 pretty steady oh, and, and so yeah but we also but it was you know we weren't just a place where people I mean, it's almost could misnamed come and, in a way i mean it's almost like it's like a it's like a pressure release you know what i mean it's a, yeah especially entertainment yeah. i mean it's that's what if, if you don't have those kind of things i'm not, sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i apologize no you know, no please i'm right with you keep going yeah if you don't have those kind of you know like uh if you go out to get a drink or something where you're you know go out to get a drink go out for some entertainment if you don't have those type of things to relieve pressure, you're going to have it, 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 pressure's just going to build and build, and you're going to have uh, a violence. You're going to have um, violent demonstrations and things of that yeah. nature. That's what's going to happen when you have things yeah. you know shut down of that na of that of that type. Uh, you're going to have people yeah. start to get frustrated. Um, mm -hmm. That's why you have to have things like this. It, it, you're exactly right, and that's um, you know that's why I. You know, because because you know, a lot of times we can look at our lives for through a very uh, like through a little a pin you know hole in a piece of paper and think, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Like, what good is this doing anyone? You know, but then you know, in Galveston's case, you know, when you step back, you know, we there is a there is such a beauty in what we provide for people here, you know, and and the Macios were just so effortlessly brilliant at it because they didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't just an escape; it was an elevated experience. You know, I mean, it was it was otherworldly, and you know, especially what was going on at the time. I mean, the Hollywood Dinner Club, which was their very first gambling club, was the very first place in the nation where you could find high-end gambling, gourmet food, and high-class entertainment all under one roof. And today, you know, that's normal. Yeah. We just call it Las Vegas. You know, <laughs> hey, that's Vegas. What are you talking about? But it's a very little-known fact that the Maceo brothers actually pioneered that template that later on in the 1940s would be picked up by the American mafia and used to make Vegas into what it is today. So that shows you the, the, the scope of the depth of their vision. You know, that shows you like how how much power they generated here, you know, to to create this this uh, this blueprint for I mean, Las Vegas is an icon, uh, whether we like it or not. It's an icon of our country. You know, mm -hmm. you tell any, everybody knows what Las Vegas is and everybody knows and you show a person a picture of the strip, even if they've never been there, they're going to know that that's Las Vegas. And, you know, and it was just really cool to um, to be able to, at least in a small way, give the Maceos some credit for, um, you know, for what that would eventually become. Yeah, just, I mean, and Galveston, too. They could be basically wrote the textbook, you know. <laughs> they did. They really they they did. did. They did. They did. And mm -hmm. so we brought, we've kind of brought everybody up to the point and we want we want people to buy the book to see what happens yes. to the Macy's. 
And I do want to say you've, you know, you've become friends with the Maceo family. Um, yes. And so I know this is book is, is really dedicated to Sam and Rose and to the Maceos and getting their story out. Um, I'm assuming the book's been real, real, well received by the um, it, descendants. Oh yeah, it has. Very good. Everybody loves it. And, uh, but most importantly, I was, uh, you know, it's funny. I just uh, came across a quote that uh, my mom, who's an English professor, shared with me uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, I forget which, I'm blanking which author it was, but they said, you know, when you're writing, you write for one person, you know, pick your audience and who you're speaking to. And and uh, in this regard, you know, I was really writing for the Maceos, but not not again, like you said, to sugarcoat their story and not yeah. to, you know, and not to, you know, kowtow to anything, but, but to illuminate, you know, just a broader perspective of who they were and to, and to, you know, give them a reason to celebrate their family. Yeah. Because again, you know, this history has been so misunderstood for, for so long. And, and so for them to, to ask me to write it, I mean, that was a huge thing. I've been studying their history for so long and the, and the way that happened was really cool. And, um, and, you know, so I'm just, I am, you know, I can set Maceo, who is one of the owners of the current business mm -hmm. and one of the, and she and her dad are the ones who asked me to write the book, you know, after her dad finished reading it, that's how much they trusted me, by the way, they didn't even read this book before I sent it to the publisher. They were just wow. like, we know that, yeah, we know that you've got it right. But so after Ronnie read it, Consetta said he was just calling everybody he knew. He's like, there's stuff in this book that I, I didn't think anybody knew. And, <laughs> you know, and he was, you know, and so it was just really, oh man, it was, uh, it was a really great yeah. feeling to to be able to uh, to instill to bring this uh, piece of history back to to light and and realize it's not something yeah. we have to be ashamed of. We don't have to brush under the rug. Yeah, you know. And like I said, you yeah. know, when I first you know I read the introduction and I was like, you know, I don't know, you know, where she was. And I mis I I forgot to apologize because I misjudged because of your zeal at the beginning in the introduction. And I was like, oh wait, she's gonna, you know that's why I thought maybe she. You know, you were gonna sugarcoat, it, you know, or try to yeah. do something. I was like, no, she actually, you know, really did her research so much. So, and like I said, we want people to read the book to see what happens to the family. I will say it involves, you know, the state house and Austin gets involved, Texas Rangers, you know, all this kind of this stuff. It's you know, it's crazy. But I mean, you're you've got you know, you're you're quoting people who who were there when things were happening, people who were you know in the kitchens when things were happening, you know. Um, so, I mean, you, you really did your research and, you know, you turned me around, you know, you made me a, 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 you know, I was like, yep. Okay. Yep. She was absolutely, you know, did her 100% you know, research. And like I said, you yeah. deep dived for me where I didn't have to. So yeah, 100%, yeah. uh, one of the best books I've read in the past, you know, I'll say six months easily, wow. you know, and I've read a lot of books. So that, I, that's my job. Yeah. A lot of books. Wow. So yeah. yeah, it was really good. Couldn't put it down. Page Turner. Thank you. Um, really good book. And uh, it was re really easy to talk to. <laughs> I could talk to you for a lot longer, but we've already gone. Yeah, we probably We've could. gone 10 minutes over. Um, yeah. So thanks for talking to me. Thanks for taking your time out of your day. Um, and thanks for writing this book and yeah, just uh, really good. I think, uh, everybody who reads it will enjoy it. It's not just a Galveston centered book. It's a book about how the world could operate. I think it's a book about yes. what you can do with a little bit of a you know, really open-mindedness. Um, you know, I think it really is the spirit of America in the book. 
really. Thank you. If yes, you think about thank it. you. So, ah, you're the perfect person to read it. Then I appreciate it. that. Means a lot to me that you uh, you were able to derive all of that because you know sometimes you uh, you put your stuff out there and you just don't know. You know, you just don't know how people are going to respond or if they're going to get it or you know or it's going to resonate with them the way you want them to it to. And for you to, I mean, you just like you know, sequentially just nailed every like theme point that I, you know, that I was trying to accomplish in the book. So to have that acknowledged is uh, is a pretty very warm and fuzzy feeling. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. We're born yeah. here. We take our country for granted. The Maceos came here and understood it. I think so. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Wow. That's brilliant. Yes, sir. Awesome. Well, thank you, Johnny, thank so you. much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, the audience, for listening. And thanks again to Kimber for joining me. The Maceos and the Free State of Galveston is available now wherever local books are sold and online at ArcadiaPublishing.com. And while you're on Arcadia Publishing, why not enter in your zip code into the search bar and see what books we have in your area. Have a question or an author you would like to hear from on the podcast? Send me an email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. That, again, is ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. I'll see what I can do. As always, I want to thank Jake and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Jake and Bill's Unnamed Band Project. Thanks, and I will speak with you again soon.